Have you ever had a moment in time where you tried to tell the truth and then your people respond to you just in disbelief? Uh, I had an experience when I was in seminary um, where uh, things outside of school were going well in my life. I'd just gotten married. Um, but I was getting to that point where you've taken on too much. And so I was trying to crank out like 29 or 30 credits in like nine months while learning how to be married. It really wasn't a good decision. And uh, I was in a class called Practicum. And the class's intent was to make sure that as we were in seminary, we didn't just learn things in our head, but we practically applied them and lived them out. And our professor had said over and over and over again, this is a safe space. This is a place where you can be honest. This is a place where you can bring your struggles in ministry. This is a place where you can share. And so one day I took him up on it. And I, yeah, you have an idea where this is going. And, uh, and I shared, you see, I had gotten to the place where I had stopped having a personal relationship with Jesus. And I started having a professional one. Uh, I read the Bible, not for myself, but for my job and for my classes. I prayed because that's what pastors are supposed to do, but I, I wasn't really praying for myself. I was burned out. Um, I was really in a dark place. And so I began to share about this in this space that I was told was a safe space. And as I looked around the room, everyone's face looked like my computer when it can't compute and that little hourglass is spinning. Or if you have a Mac, the beach ball is spinning. And like they didn't understand what I was saying. And my professor, I can remember just vividly, he said, Scott, this doesn't make sense. And I'm like, I know it doesn't make sense. And he says, you, you know, you're, you're writing these sermons twice a month for your church and you're giving them. I'm like, yeah. He says, isn't that feeding you? I'm like, no, that's for those people out there. It's not for me. I'm not getting anything out of it. He's like, well, well, you have to read the Bible. I go, yeah, I have to keep track of how much Bible I have to read for my classes. There's, 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 no, there's no sense of God working in that. It's just an assignment for school. And, um, and I can remember that day just feeling judged, feeling rejected, maybe even feeling a little bit condemned. And that was the last day I was honest in seminary. It wasn't the last day I you know, started telling the truth. I just didn't let people into that place anymore. I didn't trust them when they said this is a safe space because it hadn't been. And it was in that experience that I made myself a promise that wherever I went, where I had an opportunity to lead, I would create a space where people could be honest and transparent and authentic and not be judged and not be rejected. So that's why I share all these transparent stories up here, not because I don't want to pay for counseling and I'm trying to get it free from you. <laughs> I tell those stories because I know you have those kinds of stories. And the deception that we can fall into is somehow that we are all put together and perfect and we have all of our ducks in a row. And because I stand on this stage, I don't have any struggles or issues. And every single week, I want to break down those lies. Every single week, I want to create a space where you can show up and be honest and transparent because God can't heal your mask. God can't heal what you're not willing to be honest about. And the people who stood in that water today, they weren't in that water because they're perfect, made-up people who are really good. They got in that water because they said, hey, I'm broken and I need a Savior. And that's the kind of space we want to create here each week. So this morning, we're going to continue this series, Resurrection People. And I've got a big idea for you. And just so you know, it's a different one that's on your hand that I changed it 
late in the week. So for those of you who freak out about lines being filled in, you're going to have a hard time today. Uh, So just the big idea is different than you have written down, and it's this. Resurrection people are authentic, true, and accountable. Resurrection people are authentic, true, and accountable. If you've never heard the word resurrection before, the the word resurrection is this idea that God can bring life out of death. That God can take a dark, hopeless situation and he can transform it. That just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead that we celebrated on Easter, that God is in the business of taking situations that look bleak and he's capable of turning them into something bright. That just because we see something in one setting doesn't mean that's how that will always be. And we're people who have been changed by that resurrection. And in this series, we're looking at the early followers of Jesus and exploring how this resurrection that they'd experienced and witnessed, how it transformed them. And so today, we're going to be in the book of Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now, what you need to know is that the passage we're about to read is one of the scariest passages in the Bible. It may freak you out a little bit. You may read it and go something like this. Parents, I I promise you, I did not think that this was going to be Family Sunday when I chose this passage. Um, So you may have something to unpack when you go home, but hopefully it'll be a good source of conversation. See, the, the fact that this story is in the Bible does a few things for me. It reaffirms for me that I believe the Bible is true. Because if people are making up a book, this is not the kind of story you would include. It it reaffirms for me what we discussed last week, that that the, the pictures we get sometimes of community aren't always as perfect as we think they are. And that every time followers of Jesus, humans, resurrection people get together, there's a mixture of brokenness and good. There's a mixture of amazing and not as it should be. And this text is a great example of it. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 of Acts chapter 5. The passage reads, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, Ananias kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not also at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to Sapphira, tell me whether you sold your land for so much, literally pointing at the money that was still sitting there. And she said, yes, for so much. That's how much we sold it for. And Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together with Ananias to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who've buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out too. And immediately she fell down at his feet, and she breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out, and they buried her beside her husband. 
And a great fear came upon the entire church and upon all who heard these things. It's a crazy story. After last week, hearing about how the church had gone from 120 people to over 10,000 people in a series of just a few weeks, hearing about the amazing things that were happening there, and all of a sudden, this story is kind of dropped in the narrative. And it feels totally out of sorts, kind of like this. It just doesn't make sense. It's like, what is this doing here? And I want you to know that just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that, A, I don't have a sense of humor, and, and B, I don't read this and have the same thought you do. What? God killed them? For lying? Why am I still here, you know? What is going on here? Is this normal in the Bible? Is this like the, the new thing, you know? Like after Jesus comes, you lie, you die, you know? Like how does that work? And so this morning, I want us to lean into this text, but with honesty, not checking our brains at the door, not having to lie to ourselves, but just asking the question, what is going on here and what does this mean for me? What is God trying to say to us? This morning on your handout, there's a heading, and this is the question we're going to ask this morning. If we are resurrection people, we must what? And the first thing that we must do if we're resurrection people is we must reject hypocrisy and embrace authenticity. We must reject hypocrisy and embrace authenticity. You see, contrary to what you may have heard, this passage is not about money. This passage is not about giving. This passage is not about tithing. This, ma- this passage is about hypocrisy. Ananias and Sapphira, they chose hypocrisy. They chose to sell a piece of land. Just for today, we're going to say they sold it for $100,000. And they chose to keep 50 and give 50, saying that they sold the land for 50, which was a bold-faced What's interesting is that this passage is very similar to one that had just happened in the text. If you have your Bible still open, or if you have your phone open, click over to the previous passage in chapter 4. There's a phrase that's used in Acts 4.37. It says, at the apostles' feet. Ananias and Sapphira sold their land and brought their money to the apostles' feet, but they weren't the first person to do this. In the previous chapter, a man named Joseph did this. We read about him in Acts 4, 36 and 37. It says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, we learn about him later in Acts 2, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So right before Ananias and Sapphira come to do what they did, Barnabas did this. He took a piece of land, sold it, and brought all the money to the apostles' feet. And most commentators believed that that was applauded, that was encouraged. He got a pat on the back for that. And it appears that Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted that same thing. If you read in the scriptures in Acts 1 through 4, you realize this was very common. These early believers thought that Jesus was about to come back from heaven. And so after they provided for their own needs... They brought all their excess resources to the apostles for them to take care of the poor and those who couldn't provide for their own needs. But many people have looked on this section and they said, man, this is just Christians practicing communism or socialism, and that's just not true. 
This isn't communism. This isn't socialism. This was not compulsory. There's no place in the Bible where it says that you were required to give any amount of money, much less sell your property and give the money to the church. And yet, Ananias and Sapphira decided they were going to sell their land and tell the church that they gave it all away and secretly held some back, which is the essence of hypocrisy, saying one thing and doing another. In writing about this, the late pastor and author John Stott said this, they wanted the credit and the prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. Their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. See, it wasn't about money. It was about ego. It wasn't about how much they gave. It was about what they wanted to look like in the eyes of other people. And this story is a bold reminder that for many of us, we want the outcome without the process. We discussed this idea last week as it relates to community. And this is their story here today. That they wanted the outcome. They wanted the approval, the admiration, the applause, the pat on the back without going through the process. And isn't that how many of us end up? We see an outcome and we want that. We want other people to admire us. We want other people's success. We want that outcome, but we don't want the process of going through it. This passage for me is a reminder of how much God hates hypocrisy. You don't see this phrase a lot anymore. God hates something because it's bold language. But all throughout the scriptures, we see that one of the things that God hates the most is hypocrisy. Even in the life of Jesus, Jesus' strongest language is reserved for a group of individuals known as the Pharisees, religious leaders who at their essence were hypocrites. In Matthew 23, Jesus says to his followers, hey, they're your leaders. You have to do what they say, but don't do what they do because they say one thing and do another. If you get frustrated with somebody and you go, man, you're a hypocrite, what that's often a response to is they said one thing and they did something else. They projected a person that they weren't actually were. And in that, in that chapter, Matthew 23, this is just a short selection of what Jesus has to say about these hypocrites, these Pharisees. He says they're whitewashed tombs, children of hell, blind men, blind guides, full of greed, murderers, and self-indulgent. This isn't the kind of language you're used to hearing from Jesus. Not the nice hallmark Jesus with the flowing hair that appears to be flat-ironed, you know? This is, this is strong, bold, even maybe angry Jesus. You say, Scott, why is this passage in Acts? Why is hypocrisy such a big deal? Why do we see these people struck down for lying, and yet my friend isn't struck down for lying? I've lied, and I haven't been struck down for lying. Why does this text sit in the middle of Acts? Well, here's the reason why I believe it is. Because hypocrisy destroys community. Hypocrisy destroys community. This is the early church. We're, we're not even a few months after Jesus' resurrection and return to heaven. 120 people 
has been transformed into 10,000 men, women, and children who are following Jesus. Momentum is great. The stakes are high. And if this attitude that was in Ananias and Sapphira, if it had spread to that church, it could have ruined everything. Because if other people had become that hypocritical, then all of the momentum would have been lost. Because you know that some of the momentum the American church has had has been destroyed by hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is one of the five things that you hear people say about Christians they don't like. You guys say one thing and do another. You project something you, not, you actually aren't. That's why hypocrisy is so dangerous. And that's why our challenge as resurrection people is to reject hypocrisy and embrace authenticity. To say, you know what, I'm not perfect, I'm not broken, and I'm not going to project some picture of myself that I'm not. If you've ever been baptized, you had a moment where you stepped in some water and said, I am not perfect. In fact, I am not even good. I was dead in my sins, and yet Christ raised me to life. And it's that kind of attitude that we have to continue to have if we're going to avoid this kind of hypocrisy. Because it's so tempting to predict a picture of ourselves that's not actually true. So we reject hypocrisy and embrace authenticity. The second thing that we must do as resurrection people is we must reject license and embrace holiness. Reject license and embrace holiness. Now that word license isn't the thing that gives you the permission to drive around in your car. License is this idea that I can do whatever I want. And when you hear the word holiness, I think a lot of us think of kind of a spectrum like this. We think of on one end, I can do whatever I want, wherever I want, whenever I want. That's the essence of license. I can make whatever choices I want, and it doesn't affect anybody else. On the other end of holiness, we have this picture that's holier than thou, arrogant, or controlling. Some people who you've heard talk about holiness are people who put themselves above you. They were arrogant. They were proud. They thought they were better than you, and they looked down on you. And because of, a, because of this spectrum, a lot of us have given up the idea of holiness because we've only experienced a caricature of it, an imperfect picture of it. But here in this text, in Acts 5, I believe that what Jesus is trying to tell us through this story is that we are to reject license and embrace holiness because what you do doesn't just impact you. This is the, the example of Ananias and Sapphira. It isn't just that they lied about their money and what they gave. Peter knew that this was the work of Satan, that it wasn't just going to impact them, it was going to impact others. And what you do doesn't just impact you because other people are watching you and other people are impacted by all of your decisions. And so many of us think, well, I can just use my freedom however I want. To go back to the words of Jesus in Matthew 23, when he talks about these Pharisees, these whitewashed tombs, these children of hell, these murderers, he uses a phrase. He uses a phrase, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven is an old word for a term we know called yeast. And if you've ever baked bread, you know that yeast is the difference between a loaf of bread and a pancake. Yeast is the thing that enables bread to rise. And just a little bit of it goes a long way. A little bit of yeast can give you bread. 
a lot of yeast can give you a basketball. (laughs) And it just takes a little bit of hypocrisy. It just takes a little bit of license. It just takes a little bit of I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, and it only affects me to see radical change. See, I believe that the word holiness has fallen out of favor in the American church today. We've avoided it. We don't talk about it. And we don't like the idea of the focus on our behavior and our actions mattering. We especially don't like anybody telling us what we should do or where we should do it or how we should do it. And because of that, I think we've missed something that's really important, and that's the idea of conviction. Sarah Bessie, in a popular blog that went viral last month, said this. She said, I think that we hear overcorrection to a lot of legalism and boundary marker Christianity that damaged so many. The behavior modification and rulemaking and imposition of other people's convictions onto our own souls. But in steering away from legalism, it's the idea that you can earn your salvation, I wonder if we left the road to holiness or began to forget that God also cares about what we do and how we do it and why. In leaving behind the idea that I'm going to impose on you my sense of what's right and wrong according to the Bible, I believe many of us have gone the far other direction where no one can tell us anything about anything and where we're the captains of our own soul. We're the ones who are going to decide what we're going to do and how we're going to do it, and no one can tell us different, not even God. And in that context, I believe we make ourselves vulnerable to the very temptations that faced Ananias and Sapphira that gave them the idea that they could do whatever they want without consequence. In his book on holiness, Joel Skandrit said, the most basic meaning of the word holy is to be set apart or dedicated to God, to belong to God. Prior to any consideration of morality, biblical holiness describes a unique relationship that God has established and desires with his people. See, when we experience the resurrection that our friends just gave us a a picture of in baptism, that sets us apart. It doesn't make us better than other people. It doesn't make us above other people. It just means that we are now no longer the primary leader of our life, Jesus is. We're not the one deciding what it is we're going to do and where and why. We've surrendered that to Jesus. We've entrusted that to him. And so now as a result, there is a way that we are to walk in. There is a path that he calls us to walk in. And yes, there are things that are right and wrong. Yes, there are things that lead us to life and lead us to death. Yes, there are things that we're free to do and not free to do because we are now following Jesus. If you claim the term Christian, what you're literally claiming is I am a little Christ. That is the meaning of the word. So if you're not ready to claim that, maybe find a new term. Because by claiming to be a Christian, you're saying, I'm going to walk in the way of Jesus. I am going to do everything I can to put myself in a place where God can make me like him. I quoted 2 Corinthians 5 when we get ready to baptize, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Well, right after that, there's a passage in 2 Corinthians 5.21 I wanted to read you. Paul says, For our sake... He made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus 
we might become the righteousness of God. That's what God wants to do in you. Yes, this is a place where you can come as you are. This is a place where you can be authentic with your issues and your brokenness and your sin. And what gets you in that door is not your perfection. What gets you in that door is your brokenness. No perfect people allowed. But guess what? Jesus is not going to leave you there in your brokenness. He meets you where you are. And he wants to make you like Jesus. And so our challenge is to reject the license that says, it doesn't matter what I do. And to embrace the holiness that says, God is doing something in me to make me someone I've never been before. The third piece that we must embrace is we must reject isolation and embrace accountability. We must reject isolation and embrace accountability. See, one of the challenges that I see in here, and there's no, there's no verse for this, so this is just Scott talking, so you can treat this as not, not what the Bible says. But I don't see any place in here where Ananias and Sapphira go to a friend and say, hey, we have this idea. We're going to sell our land for 100, we're going to give 50, and then we're going to tell them that's what we sold it for. They don't seek any counsel. Because I think somebody would have said, bad idea. They just conspired together, did this, and there were disastrous consequences. See, what we need to learn is that we are opposed by Satan. He desires to work against what God is doing in the world. And 120 people to over 10,000 people following Jesus is something that Satan was against. And so he decides that he's going to try to break in on that by tempting Ananias and Sapphira to lie. See, what happens is when you begin to walk in the way that Jesus wants you to go, you will experience opposition. So for you girls and for Whitney today, you need to know. You have a target on your back. Satan is going to come after you because you are going the direction that God wants you to go. When you begin to pursue God and obey him and follow him, you're going to experience more opposition, not less. And as you're experiencing this opposition, what you need to know is that you are most vulnerable when you're isolated. You are most vulnerable when you are isolated. If you've ever struggled with depression, if you've ever struggled with an addiction, if you've ever struggled with some sort of compulsion or temptation that you just couldn't beat, when were you most vulnerable? When you were alone. Often at night. Ananias and Sapphira were isolated. They were vulnerable. And they lost with disastrous consequences. The myth of this device is that the more you use it, the less isolated you are. It's a lie. This can lead to more connection. But studies show that over a certain point, if you're just scrolling Facebook, you're scrolling to deeper isolation, depression, and dissatisfaction with your life. Now, if you engage people on there and you're messaging and talking and connecting, that can be the end of isolation. It can lead to connection. But if you're just one of those creeper scrollers that just watches everybody else's life, you, you know who you are. 
That's going to make you feel more isolated, not less. That's going to make you feel more depressed, not less. That's going to make you feel more disconnected. And when you're in that place, you are vulnerable. And what we have to know is that our life is temporary. It's not guaranteed. It could be gone like that. And when it comes to God, our life is temporary. It's a stewardship and we're accountable. This life that we have, it's not just frivolously given to us. It's given to us to be stewarded and managed well. And God will one day hold us accountable for what we did, for how we lived. Now that's God. And this is going to be a huge shock for many of you. I am not God. I know, you're sitting down. It's good for that. So I can't make you be accountable. I can't make you do anything. That's part of the you know, the frustration of this job. I can tell you things for 35 minutes, but I can't make you do any of them. I can't make you accountable for anything. And if I do, I could do it through fear and power and abuse, but we know where all those things lead. See, when it comes to humans, accountability cannot be imposed. It can only be invited. When it comes to other people, accountability cannot be imposed. It can only be invited. What that means is that I can't make you be accountable to me. You can only invite me to hold you accountable. So no one could say, Ananias and Sapphira, we're going to be in your life to give you good counsel so you don't make bad decisions that cost you everything. Only Ananias and Sapphira could say, hey, we want to be accountable for how we spend our money and the decisions we make help us do that. And accountability is a word that's fallen out of favor in the church today. For many of us, because it was just poorly experienced. When I was in accountability groups, you know what that was? That was people going like this to me every time I sinned. You know? I was on my computer. I saw something I shouldn't have. Don't do that anymore, Scott. You know? That didn't help me. I just started lying to those people because I didn't want to get slapped anymore, you know? Because they were imposing accountability on me. But when you decide that you want to be accountable, when you decide that your life is a stewardship, it's temporary, and you want it to matter, when you realize that God has raised you from death to life and you have a limited window to make an impact with your life, you invite people to hold you accountable and you reject isolation because you know you are a powerful person. Some of you have forgotten how powerful you are. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is alive in you. And then you have a limited life. At the end of this passage, there's an interesting verse. It says that a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. That word fear, we typically think about things that go bump in the night or spiders or the dark or heights or roller coasters. The word fear really means awe and wonder. It was a sense of trembling. That God was big. Do you have that sense? That God is big? That he's powerful? That he holds people accountable? that what you do matters to him? 
See, that's the kind of spirit that calls us to be authentic because you don't hide in the face of that kind of God. You know that he knows the truth about who you are. So what's the point of lying? And it's that kind of fear that leads you to what we're talking about next with our our final section, our next steps this morning. There's four things on the back I want to encourage you to think through this week. The first one is evaluate your personal authenticity. Not just the question of am I being real, but am I being consistent? See, I decided that day back in seminary that that was not a safe place for me to be authentic anymore because what they wanted from me was less than authenticity. But I didn't give up on being authentic that day. No, I began looking for a place to be authentic that day, a place where I could be who I am. And this is a place where you can come as you are. But you cannot stay that way forever because that's not what God wants. He wants to meet you where you are and love you where you are so that he can make you who he created you to be. So evaluate your personal authenticity. Second, I want to challenge you to renew your pursuit of holiness. I want to challenge you to, to renew the sense of I'm going to walk in the way that God has called me to. That there is a way that leads to life and a way that leads to death. There are choices that make me more of who God has made me to be and less of who he's made me to be. If you're a resurrection person, there is a life that is consistent with that. And there's a life that contradicts that. Which one are you living? Third, I want to challenge you to identify your vulnerabilities. Are you isolated? If you're isolated, you're vulnerable. And I would challenge you to go out to the belong table and learn more about our community groups and get connected. Because it's very easy for you to stay isolated in these rows. It's much harder to be isolated when you're sitting in somebody's living room sharing and talking and those people will call you if you don't show up. If you don't know anybody here and you just come in and sit in a row, unless you've made a friend, no one's going to call you if you're not here. I shared a few weeks ago on Easter that there's a woman in our church who committed suicide in early April. And she had chosen to be isolated. And she was vulnerable to some very dark thoughts that had some very disastrous consequences. If that's you, don't leave today isolated. Come forward and pray with somebody. Go out to one of the tables and talk to somebody. And then finally, four, deepen your dependence on the Holy Spirit. The myth of the American dream is the self-made man or woman who pulls them up by their bootstraps and does it on their own. That's the American dream. It's not the biblical dream. The biblical image is of a man or a woman who realizes that they can't do it on their own and they need the power of the Holy Spirit. If you want to live the life that this book talks about, you can't do it on your own. You can't make yourself good enough. If you did, why did we need to get in the baptistry today? Why did Jesus have to die? No, we have to deepen our dependence on the Holy Spirit. You know, it's dangerous to lie to that spirit, but it's also dangerous to depend on that spirit. And when you begin to depend on the Holy Spirit, things that you never thought were possible begin to emerge. Resurrection people are authentic, they're true, and they're accountable, and God uses them to change the world. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this 
disturbing, challenging, convicting passage. We thank you for the reminder that what we do matters. We thank you for the reminder of your awe and your power and your might. And we confess that for many of us, we've, we've lost sight of some of these things. For some of us in this room, we, we've never even seen them at all. And we pray this morning that you would bring us face to face with our brokenness and imperfection. That unlike the example of Ananias and Sapphira, that we wouldn't inflate our ego, but we deflate it. That we wouldn't increase our pride, but we'd humble ourselves. And in that place, you would meet us and show us the way that you want us to walk. Show us the path you want us to take. You didn't just resurrect our life for no reason. You brought us back to life for purpose. And we pray that you would continue to clarify that purpose for us in these days. Thank you that you love us just the way we are. But we pray, Jesus, you wouldn't leave us there. We pray that you would make us more like your son, Jesus. And do in and through us things that we can't even imagine. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.